0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 124, Fuller Freedom House. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Before we get into today's episode, I do have an announcement about my podcast break. If you've been a longtime listener, you know that I always take off June and I pretend like I'm going to catch up on the episodes. I never do. Uh, But this year, I'm moving that break up to May. So not only I have three family birthdays, like big birthdays. My dad's turning 70. I'm doing a bunch of private tours. I have really fun interviews lined up for you guys to listen to. Um, I'm reading a friend's manuscript, which I'm really excited about. And my day job is making us all go back to the office. Back into the before times. Um, So there's a lot going on. So I'm going to use this break to get through that, also work on lots of new episodes and especially mini episodes for my very neglected Patreon page. So, with that out of the way, let's get to today's episode. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Alicia Guzman, who is a Thurston Fellow in Historic Preservation at the City of Atlanta's Office of Design. Back in February, Atlanta had the historic designation process started for the Fuller Freedom House, which is in the Old Fourth Ward. And Alicia worked on the research and nomination of this historic place. May starts tomorrow and it's Historic Preservation Month. And in a city that doesn't have the best track record in that department, it was nice to hear a story of a proactive nomination with a homeowner who initiated the process. But even better, it was incredible to learn about this house. Who was Fuller? What did he do? What is a Freedom House? We're covering all those questions and more.
1: Uh, My name is Alicia Guzman. I am a Thurston Fellow with the Department of City Planning's Office of Design Preservation Studios. I'm currently enrolled at Georgia State University. I'm doing my master's in heritage preservation with the Historic Preservation Concentration, and I will be graduating this May. So very excited for that.
0: Yes. So um, you're here today to talk about, is it Fuller Freedom House?
1: Yes, the Fuller Freedom House.
0: And I am I am ashamed of myself because I feel like I'm always attuned to historic house stuff that's happening or historic properties up in Atlanta, but this one threw me off and I never, we talked about this earlier, I never noticed it because I love the Dobbs House, I love the Howard School, and I think my brain just never looked over to be like, hey, what are these other houses? So my first question I think is, did everybody know about this property's history or was it something that sort of came to light?
1: Um. No, this was something that definitely came to light. Even the homeowners themselves didn't know the extensive history. It was actually in February, January of 2020 when um, a news anchor came. I think it was CBS 46 News. Um, Sally Sears was her name that did the report. And she had, I guess, done some research, but mostly had talked with um, civil rights legend Tom Houck. Um, So he was the one that made the initial claim and identified the house as a freedom house. So after significant digging, people that were in SNCC did tell us more about it, but that was the initial jump off point. So the homeowner reached out to us basically asking, is this true or just, you know, she didn't know the words at first, but basically we're like, well, this would be something that could potentially be a designation. But the only research or information we had was from that two minute clip from Tom Howard. Really?
0: How long have these property owners owned this
1: house? Uh, I believe since 2015, 2016. So pretty recent. Um, They had done some, you know, renovations and things like that, mostly interior. Um, But the exterior side, they had really just updated, you know, painting, small light fixtures, things like that. It's really been well maintained. They haven't been there that long, but they're very proud of their home. And, you know, I wish um, she was here to talk today, but she's, you know, very pleasant to work with and has been nice conversation with the community.
0: I'm sure not everybody's excited to live in a historic home, right? Or mm-hmm. or celebrate that history. So it's nice to know that somebody bought this house and was excited to get it protected and talk about it. So mm-hmm. let's back up for one second. What is the address or what street is this house on?
1: It's on John Wesley Dobbs Street. The house address is five five six John Wesley Dobbs.
0: And it's right across the street from the David T. Howard School, right? Which has just been renovated. But originally this was, did they say Houston Street back in the day? Is that what it was called? Yes. Is it Maynard Jackson renamed it after his grandfather? And is it about, I can't remember the year.
1: I think it was more closer to the nineties.
0: Okay. I think it was in the
1: nineties. Yeah. When, when it changed to John Wesley Dobbs.
0: And then the house. So, I mean, I read about this before we talked, but, and I had heard about Bishop's row before, but I never quite knew where it was. So I was like, jumping around the house, like I was like, oh, this is Bishop's Row. So I, I want to start with yeah. Bishop's Row. Like what is Bishop's Row? Why did they call this Street Bishop's Row?
1: Yeah. So I learned about that um actually just reading through the original nomination for the historic district for the MLK's National District. There's just like two or three paragraphs that kind of mention these houses and specifically Bishop's Row. So it kind of coined that term in the early 20th century because there were two prominent AME bishops that were mentioned at least in that nomination but also after doing some research we realized that area itself was developed by a local prominent bishop named bishop flipper joseph s flipper he actually owned a lot of the land that those houses were later built on and lived on that street as well on the other side actually right where the david t howard middle school is he basically lived on that corner um before that whole area was developed in like 1910, 1920s. Um, so there were other bishops that were in the area that were moving, building houses just along this street. And even though they weren't all necessarily um, A.M.E. bishops, they also had you know other religions that had very prominent leaders that you know just connected with each other because it was a good area at the time, and it, I mean it still is. It was just developing very nicely for people that were more affluent and prestigious in the Black community.
0: David T. Howard was one of the first schools for Black children, right? Was it maybe the first middle school, if I got that right?
1: Um, Yeah, it was the first. um, It started off actually as an elementary school, then it went to a high school in the 30s, and then eventually moved to a middle school. So it just kind of changed its demographics a little bit. But for the most part, I mean, the longest time it's been a middle school.
0: So who built this house? What
1: year did they build it, and who were the original builders? Mm. So the original builders are the Fuller family. William Edward Fuller, he was the one that built it in 1928. So he purchased the land from Bishop Flipper in the mid 1920s, 1926, 1927, and then started building the house. So I actually was able to find microfilm that showed the building permit and the house labeling and his address. So there's no architect listed. It just says builder.
0: That was my you next know. question, because do you think it could have been Alexander Hamilton? I don't um, know. It
1: doesn't say. I mean, co- according to his children um, that are still living today, some of them, they said that he's the one that built it, him, some of his religious friends, and really the community he's, they are really talking about. So there's no architect listed, the, and it doesn't even have a builder's name. It just says builder.
0: Wow. So Where was he a... You said he was a bishop. What was his title? Mm -hmm.
1: So his title is Bishop Fuller. Um, He actually started the Fire Baptized Holiness Association, which was a church of religion that came about in the mid-19th century, uh, a little bit prior to the Civil War. But then after that, it kind of split ways. There was like a white organization and a black organization of it. So he kind of took more of the African-American community and created the this organization and this um congregation essentially. So um I don't want to misquote how they, you know, practice yeah, their religion no. and things like that. But it, you know, it's basically a more sacred religion that they have a lot more traditions that are embedded um from mostly from the South and how it's really concentrated to the black community. And so it's been interesting learning about how he was the main one that basically established that in the South in Georgia and in South Carolina. And today it's expanded across the United States, really, um, mostly on the eastern coast, but even into um, countries like in Jamaica and Canada.
0: Now, did they have a church building that was like near this house?
1: Yeah, they had several churches. Within the historic district of MLK's National District, there's four churches that are associated with this religion and him being the founder of them. So there's the Fuller Memorial Tabernacle, which I believe it's on Fairburn Road. Um, These are all just in Atlanta. Then there's the Aaron's Temple, there's the Zion Temple, which is actually right not even two two-minute walk from where the birth home of MLK.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I passed that. It is a really unique building. And I, I remember taking a picture one day thinking, I'm gonna look this up later, but I have a list of those, I'll look up later. So yeah. that church, and I know Aaron's temple, I think it's over on the west side closer to where yes. I
1: so and, those so, are all FBH churches, fire baptized holiness churches.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he so not only was he close to some churches, but then also Bishop's Row attracted him to this, to this. Yes. Now, speaking of his family, how many, do we know how many kids he had?
1: So he had two wives. Um, I believe in the first marriage, um, there was four or five children. And then in the second one, there were seven children. So a lot of kids, Um, they were pretty spaced out in age. And actually I've been. One of the main resources that helped me discover all this history about him was his daughter, um, who's still—I'm still in contact with today. She's ninety-one, ninety-two. She's going to get mad at me if she hears this. She's like, "I'm not um, that old."
0: I love, I love. This sounds yeah, talking to older people because they have all of that oral history in their brains.
1: Yeah. Oh, so amazing. she's been a great resource um, in just sharing a lot of the personal stories about how he. You know, at times when he didn't have a car in the early um, 20th century, he just got on a mule and went to his churches and things like that. And she was telling me how strict he was, but, you know, a very dedicated father. So getting those personal insights that you really don't get to read about, you know, when you're just reading biographies and stuff. Yeah. So
0: now, how long did that family live in that house?
1: So he died in uh, 1958, but it remained in the family's possession until
0: 1960. Wow. So, okay. Like, so now, you know, when does it become a freedom house? And I have lots of questions. Like what is a freedom house? Yeah. You know, so what yeah. is that part of the story?
1: So it became a freedom house most likely between 1962 to 1963. Um, so there's no formal documentation that you know labels a chain of deeds to any of like the chairman or any of the executive um, secretaries with Nick because we know that freedom houses are more so just voluntary residential spaces for people that supported the movement and things like that. They would offer up their homes. Oftentimes they were people that were in the religious community or just activists fighting for the same cause and say, hey, i have a big enough house. You know, you can use my space to come stay here. So Freedom Houses were more of a boarding space in between their campaigns and sometimes jail sentences. They really were time for like relaxation. Sometimes it would have formal meetings, but mostly those meetings were held at the Atlanta office, which was on Raymond Street near the university, Belmont Morehouse, those areas. And this was a student nonviolent coordinating committee with students, college aged kids. So um, Freedom Houses really just were an informal way of gathering and place to sleep and have food. Uh, this house specifically, we know that there was only two in Atlanta. There were more freedom houses out in Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, where a lot of those um, freedom summers happened, things like that. Um, but we know that those areas were more targeted, often, you know, violent. Some of them got bombed. But the ones in Atlanta didn't have to have that threat because they were in, you know, probably black neighborhoods. People, yeah. yeah, you have the Klan would ride through, but they didn't really do anything at that time. So. To answer your question as to what we know about it we know that there were students that lived there specifically we know that from tom Hout's interpretation and also from two other SNCC slash student christian leadership veterans they said that that was a, a SNCC freedom house and that um, john lewis stokely carmichael and ruby doris robinson frequently stayed there throughout their time, either with the movement as chairman or just being involved in, you know, living, you know, yeah. in Atlanta at that time.
0: If the Fuller yeah. family owned it, you're saying early, like 1960, did it actually mm-hmm. sell to, was it a private person that sort of made it a Freedom House or did it sell to the organization?
1: So it didn't sell to the organization. It was really just a private person that the home was sold to. Um, I believe, when I remembering, his name was something Reynolds. I tried looking up information about him, and there really wasn't much. I didn't know that he was just kind of buying a few different properties around Atlanta in the '60s and even '70s. Um, but the house was changed into unit apartments. It was eventually during the '60s and '70s it expanded, but it, it had multiple families living there and had multiple bedrooms. It was a big house and. I'm not quite sure in terms of the transaction of... There were a lot of tenants listed in the city directory. I don't know Got who it. specifically you know, had the idea, but I just know that in that time frame, there were a lot of people in and out of that house. Some permanent residents that were paying rent, but most likely there were a lot of college age students. And so to also verify that Miss Betty Taylor, the one who is the daughter of Bishop Fuller, she lived next door throughout for another 20 years. Oh, wow. So wow she lived in that house for 30 years and then lived next door for another 10 to 20 years. And she said, she recalls, you know, seeing like teenagers come in and out, but that she was very open and honest. She said, you know, I wish I would have been more involved in the movement. I was more involved with the church. Um, but I was also raising a young family at the time. And so I knew that there was violence and danger that I just didn't want to get myself involved in. So I appreciated her honesty. And so she didn't have as solid of a memory of seeing, I'm like, did you see John Lewis? She's yeah. like, I've never seen him. Yeah. What yeah. him. What was he wearing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she was like, I've seen him. I've met him before. You know, she went to school with MLK like when they were like in grade school. So she's like, yeah, it's whatever. But I'm just like, wow, this is so cool. Like, tell me more. <laughs> so so now, yeah.
0: Is there any, do we have record or something of John Lewis ever talking about that house? You know, I haven't found something
1: specifically specific mentioning the address of the house or anything, but I know in some of his biographies, he talks about just his time, you know, being SNCC, um, the chairman of SNCC. He's mostly talking about the campaigns, um, but really the evidence that we had that's fully supported that was the two living histories, uh, Tom Hauck and another man, um, T.J. Johnson, who were very active in their movement with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that were pretty much, you know, a branch of SNCC, you know, they worked together very closely in the beginning in the 1960s and things like that, or 1960 to 1963, 64, um, until, you know, management changed over and leadership and then certain tensions started to arise, but they were the two that verified that. And then in terms of verifying it as a freedom house, We know um, we actually found an AJC article from 1966 that's talking about 12 students had just been arrested for doing some sort of um, like picketing, you know, uh, protest, something very simple. You can tell by the writing, it's a lot more skewed to villainize the students um, and, you know, say that they were being aggressive, this and that, which we can assume that wasn't the case, but they were arrested. And so, when they were arrested, they were asking their names. They wouldn't give their names. They were asked where they lived or where they stayed. And they listed 556 John Wesley Dobbs or House Industry at the time as the house. And they and even in the report, it says they listed a freedom house. So they listed three, even though we know of two. And they didn't list the SNCC office. They only listed houses. And that was the main house that they listed. So that helps solidify the oral history to the written documents
0: when it comes to tom's story what what is what was his memories or his oral history like
1: what did he have Mm -hmm. to say well his his memory was more about how he remembers being there um because apparently the student christian leadership's uh freedom house conference leader freedom house was actually like adjacent behind the house uh i know that street isn't there now the freedom parkway is there now it's been all bulldozed and things like that but he remembers walking through the backyards and going to the house but since he was more involved with mlk and the um the voting rights movement he you know remembers going to a few meetings and mostly he described it more like a cookout kind of thing yeah. <laughs> it's no, like, yeah, you really know get, we get food yeah, it's yeah because good. it was a place of leisure you know it wasn't a place where they had to have all these serious meetings it was you know that in-between time where they didn't want to have to maybe think so hard or feel the pressures of the outside world. So, um, he, he was just giving me more personal narratives from what he could remember, um, and who he remembers seeing at the house and things like that.
0: That's incredible. Now I got to ask, cause you said there's two freedom houses. Where is the other
1: one? So the other one was, um, not from SNCC Freedom House, but the Student Christian Leadership Conference one is the one that's at an angle from the back, but it's no longer oh, here. Unfortunately, right. it's been demolished. So
0: Oh, that's so yeah. really the only one we have left. That yeah, that is known. Here. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the homeowner, the current homeowner finds us out, you corroborate the story, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the process now? to go about protecting it? Like, what did you work on and then explain to sort of people that don't understand how that works?
1: Yeah, so for my myself, um, I was given the assignment to basically fill in the gaps, which there were a lot of gaps in the beginning and then um, you know filling in gaps that we didn't even know were there until we stumbled across the documents and the stories and things like that. But basically we were just trying to collect as much information um, because there really wasn't any formal documentation about the home. I completed a historic resource survey just so Nargis um, catalog, you know, the the State Historic Preservations Office could have a record of it since there was nothing. Um, It is considered a contributing property um, according to the National Register nomination because of its style of architecture and the time period it was constructed. But other than that, there was nothing. So collecting all the resources and basically writing out the formal designation, a report, To present into the UDC, the Urban Design Commission, to say, hey, we've, you know, found this historic resource. We think that it's had a lot of value for the city of Atlanta and meets all these criteria, you know, cultural significance, architectural and historic significance. It has to hit a few of those depending on, you know, what the resource is, but it really wasn't hard to meet a lot of them. It really hit every single category pretty strongly. So after writing that report, collecting all the resources. I went in front of the UDC board and they had already read the report, but kind of did a presentation. We had the homeowner speak in favor of it as to why she thinks it's a good idea, um, which is really important to us because we really want to have that community support, especially from a homeowner, um, even if they didn't necessarily initiate it, which in her case she did, You know that she still supported this process. Um, So moving forward, there's a few other Meetings we have to go through, um, but it's already been approved and very much praised by the UDC. And now we have to go through the neighborhood planning unit to make sure that they're okay with it, because um, there are, are going to be some rezoning things involved with it. But for the most part, we're just making sure that we are preserving all of our historic resources that you know could be potentially lost. Because I know around the area, it's already starting to be developed, and I'm not a fan of the
0: houses. <laughs> I I always say this, and I'm like, I'm not an architect, but I know what I hate is that it, and you I know you are gonna agree here that it is always the communities that are black or brown that that don't get protected, right? And so, and then make it easy for somebody to come in, buy an old house, clear it out, and put up whatever they want, which you know, I guess in our time is the cube modern boxes. And so the old fourth ward, mm-hmm. especially in that area those houses are demolished at a rapid rate. And and so mm. for me, what's hard is how do you tell this story when, like you said, we don't, you know, Freedom Parkway well, already did its damage. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much missing there. I think it's MLK's, when he moved out of that birth home, that house is gone. That's like right when you get off um, the exit there, you know, off the connector. So, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Like we, that area really needs its protections. And so when this mm-hmm. gets through all of its committees and all that stuff, it will have, what is the title? Is it a landmark designation? Like, what will it have? Yes,
1: a local landmark designation. So it offers, you know, for those that may not know the levels of protection, it offers a lot more than, say, the National Register, you know, being recognized as a landmark or um, historic site, things like that, because, you know, they could technically be removed or demolished. Um, You know, there's obviously paperwork that have to go through that, but if some land developer really put a nice case up, they could do that. Versus there would be a lot more steps, a lot more reviews and fighting really that would happen at a local level. So, yeah, and I really think that um, they're doing a good job at, you know, I say they as in like the Department of City Planning, um, especially since they've launched their Future Places project initiative has been making sure that they're really using all of their resources and connecting with multiple parties that are involved, not just planners, not just, you know, certain members of the community and not everybody in the community, Um, professionals like preservationists and things like that, that are really thinking about all of the effects that some of these plans have, not just on the immediate surrounding neighborhood, but, you know, long-term and um, not just like the physical landscape, but also like the cultural aspects of it. You know, when you are taking away some of these historically black and brown neighborhoods, What does that mean for the community? What message is the city sending as to who they value or what areas or resources they value as a city?
0: I I am with you. So uh, this is such a great, it's like a preservation happy story, which we don't have a lot of. We don't have a lot in Atlanta and it's happy that the city did this. I'm excited to see what else they're gonna work on. Um, And I don't know. I mean, do you have anything else we think we missed? Like, I feel like I got all my questions answered. I wanna drive out there right now to go see it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, for me personally, I'm I'm not a local Atlantean, so Atlantean, sorry if I said that wrong. Um, I live more in Marietta, Kennesaw area, so if I just this project alone has really opened my eyes to a lot of different histories in Georgia that I would say I wasn't maybe as well informed of, or, or just as appreciative of, of seeing all these sources right in my backyard, essentially. So it's been really interesting and fun. And I've actually been honored to connect with the Fire Baptized Hellenist community. They've reached out since then. Um, so I've been partnering with them and making sure that they're very much in the know about this. And they're very excited. So I like to just give them a shout out for their ongoing support. You know, with this research, they've helped me and also, you know, hopefully we'll expand the narrative Well,
0: I love this. I appreciate your time. Like I'm excited about it. Yay. Great.
1: Well, I'm glad we got some information. Thank you for your
0: time. So there you have it. The story of the Fuller Freedom House. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review where you listen. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. There will be new mini episodes added there throughout the month of May. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I will be back in your podcast feeds on June 4th.